Brothers and sisters, let us take our copy of God's Word and turn this morning together to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, as we continue our journey through this gospel of our Lord. You know, we are in Passion Week. That is the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And we see this morning the conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders continuing. Our text this morning is just four brief verses. Look with me as I read Luke 20, beginning at verse 41. But he, Jesus, said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Let's pray. Father God, we are blessed as your children to now, Lord, be instructed by your holy word. This word, Lord, that you have given, that you have preserved down through the ages, this word that is inspired and without error as you gave it. And our prayer now, Lord, is that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds and our hearts, that you would grant us understanding, that, Father, you would allow us to to look in and to consider the wonders of Christ, our King, to be convicted of sin, O Lord, to, to be drawn near to you in awe and wonder and love, to be shaped, Lord, conformed. To the very image of Christ. Lead us now, Lord, in your truth. Sanctify us now, Lord, in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I were to come individually to each one of you and ask you, who are you? How would you answer that question? Would you answer it by maybe, you know, giving your your occupation or the work that you've done. Oh, I'm a, I'm a nurse or I'm a teacher. Or I'm, a, I'm a mechanic. I'm an officer. I'm an IT specialist. Would you perhaps identify yourself more by relationship? Oh, I'm a, I'm a husband or I'm a wife. I'm a father. I, I'm a mother. Or maybe you'd give that really good Sunday school answer. Oh, I'm a Christian. That's my identifying marker. But is any one of those things all that you are? Is any one of those things even the pinnacle of who you are? I guess I would say I hope that that your faith, the fact that you are a Christian, is the pinnacle of who you are. That's the question that Jesus brings us to in the text this morning. Not so much about who we are or who the religious leaders are, but he's leading them to consider who he is. As I've already noted, we're in Passion Week here, and there has been a tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, and that tension has been there throughout his earthly ministry. But in this final Passion Week, it's all coming to a boiling point. The religious leaders have have been getting called out by Jesus, left and right, as he has been teaching in the temple during this week leading up to the Passover. In just this chapter, Luke records for us three different times that they came to him with questions challenging his authority. 
They were trying to get him to either discredit himself in the eyes of the people or to incriminate himself in the eyes of Rome. Needless to say, we see at every turn that they failed miserably. Well, Jesus turns the tables on them again in our text this morning by asking them a question of his own. And his question to them brings us all to the critical subject of his identity. And specifically, his identity as our Savior King. And so let's first consider in this text the inadequate view of the Messiah. The inadequate view of the the Messiah. We pick up at verse 41, and while the people and the religious leaders are gathered there together, Jesus says to them, verse 41, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? We want to remember here that that the word Christ translates the Greek term Christos. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. Especially during the past year of public ministry, the multitudes in Israel had become more and more vocal about Jesus' identity. They were openly questioning whether or not Jesus might be the promised Messiah. We also know that just a few days before, it was with shouts of messianic acclamation that he entered Jerusalem accompanied by a great crowd. And remember that the religious leaders, they were furious about this. They were furious over his acceptance of that title of Messiah. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, they did not believe that that was who Jesus was. And so it's very interesting that that's really why Jesus asked the question here the way he does. Jesus did not ask the religious leaders, what do you think about me? Whose son do you think I am? If he had asked them that question, the religious leaders probably would have said something like, well, you're an unsanctioned, rebellious rabbi, or you're a blasphemer, or some of them might have even said, we think you're a son of Satan, because we know earlier in in his ministry that they actually accused him of, of exercising power in the name and for the glory of Satan. So even though Jesus was the Christ... He asked them the question from the perspective of the third person because he was about to give them a lesson in scriptural interpretation that they were never going to forget. The question that he asked them reflects what the scribes and Pharisees themselves taught. They themselves taught that the Messiah was the son of David, which is absolutely true. If we go back in the Old Testament, we can look in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, when God makes the promise to King David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that promise to King David that one would come from his line who would rule forever is reiterated over and over again in the text from that point. Many places, but you go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Pathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So, so many things that we see going forward, even in in Old Testament history, go back to this idea that one would come from the tribe of Judah, one would come from the, the line of David, who would be the ultimate king, the Messiah. 
And what is interesting is that even though the religious leaders did not think that Jesus was the Messiah, they never tried to deny his lineage. Before the temple was destroyed in AD 70, there were extensive genealogical records that were housed there at the temple. And those genealogies were essential for establishing the lineages of the Levites and the priests. And even more, establishing who came from the tribe of Judah. Because of those prophecies given earlier about the descendant of David, there was particular honor and focus on those who were descended from the tribe of Judah. Well, we can be absolutely sure that the religious leaders had carefully checked Jesus' lineage and found him to be not only a legitimate, a legitimate member of the tribe of Judah, but also a legitimate heir of King David. Because if they had found that he was not, they would have been discrediting him with that information from the very beginning. So Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. He was the Messiah But the religious leaders would not acknowledge it. They thought that that title was too great for him. But what we see here, the reason Jesus speaks to them here in this manner, and the reason he begins to interpret the text for them in this manner, is what Jesus wants them to see, is that not only is the the messianic title not too great for him, it is not enough to express his true identity. In other words, to merely think of him as the Messiah was too limited. Yes, he was the son of David. Yes, he was the Messiah, but he was also so much more. And so, though in one respect, their view of the Messiah, they didn't think he was a Messiah, but their understanding of who their Messiah would be, their understanding of that was true, but it was wholly inadequate. And that is what Jesus proceeds to show them. Now, before we leave this point, We really want to consider and understand here that that what we see in the religious leaders is exactly what we always find in the heart of unbelief or in a heart that's stumbling in faith. Sinful men always seek to subtract from the person of Christ. Sinful men always seek to subtract from the person of Christ. Consider all the different worldly views out there. You know, if if we just went out into the secular university, out into the secular world... What do they say about Jesus? Who do they contend that he is? Well, you know, most unbelievers would say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great example. You know, he was a truly religious man. He taught good things. You know, that that whole golden rule thing, doing to others as you would have them doing to you, that's good, right? That's a good teaching. He was a good example. The idea of, you know, someone giving their life, you know, that's, that's a good example, there are others out there that, you know, they, they look upon the Lord in a, in a little different way. There's like, you know, God is just, you know, this, this, this being in the sky who's just always trying to kill the party. He's the cosmic cop who's always trying to take away our joy and everything. We're just down here. We want to have a little fun. We want to do our own thing. And, you know, this all this talk about religion and God and God's word and God's law, that just gets in the way. Makes us feel guilty. We shouldn't have to feel guilty. You look even at other religions, you know, in Islam, probably the next largest world religion after Christianity, they revere Jesus. They they believe Jesus was a great prophet, but only a prophet. Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus was a a God, but a lesser God, Not, not God incarnate, not fully God, the way God the Father is God. 
Or you go to Mormonism, and Mormonism teaches that, you know, Jesus is a literal son of God the Father, and Jesus and Lucifer were brothers, and Jesus just happened to make the good choice to be the good son, and Lucifer just happened to be the bad, cho- bad son make the bad choice, and, you know, that they have a different view of Jesus altogether. And so there are a lot of views out there, but all of them reflect the fact that, that unbelieving hearts always seek to consider and to think of Jesus as less than who he truly is. The sad thing, brothers and sisters, is when we also stop talking about the secular world and start talking about the church, in the church, there's also a lot of inadequate views about Jesus. You know, you have a, you have a health and wealth gospel out there that says, Jesus is my bank. All I got to do is find the right combination of faith, and he's going to give me all those blessings that I deserve. He's going to make me healthy and wealthy and provide for me everything I want. You have churches that speak of Jesus as kind of your buddy. You know, he's your friend. Jesus is my cosmic vending machine. I just go to him when I have a need and, and try to say the right prayers and do the right things so that he'll give me what I want. Or they view Jesus as as my safety net. Jesus is the one who's there for me when things go wrong. You know, when everything's going good, we can bebop along, we can do our own thing. But, you know, when when the bottom falls out, when I lose my job, or when my spouse gets cancer, or or, or when something really awful happens, that's when Jesus is there for me. He's, He's my safety net. Others, you know, view Jesus as their enabler. We all know that God just wants me to be happy, right? God wants me to be happy. And therefore, whatever decision I happen to make that leads to my happiness, God's good with that. Don't don't talk to me about what's, what's contrary to the Bible or what's in alignment with Scripture. You know, God loves and God wants me to be happy, and therefore, they view God as their divine enabler. Brothers and sisters, these views are all sub Christian. I would even go so far as to say that these views are anti Christian or anti Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, here's the problem. And it's even in us in the church. In our flesh, in our flesh, we prefer these lesser views of Jesus because it makes Jesus more tame to our senses. It makes Jesus more tolerable of our sin. And thus, it makes it more safe for us to live unchanged lives. If, if, you're really, if you really see that your heart is out of alignment of God's word, you need to go back and ask, who do I really believe Jesus to be in my life? Who do I really understand him to be as my Savior, as God Almighty, who has purchased me for his very own? Don't be content with a lesser view of Jesus just because it makes you feel better about yourself and your sin. Because all of us, brothers and sisters, will answer to God. Christ is prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. He is the Son of God and God incarnate and He is the only way of salvation. If you think of any consideration, if you think that one day you're going to be able to enter those gates of glory and stand before God and say, God, I've lived a pretty moral life. I've lived a pretty, lived, lived a pretty decent life. I deserve heaven. He is going to look at you and he's going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. 
Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God continually and believing in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him as your one and only Savior and Lord. That is the only way of salvation. And if that does not describe you today, I plead with you, run. Run from your sin, turn from it, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. John 14, 6. That takes me to my second point, the exalted identity of the Son. Now we look at the exalted identity of the Son. What Jesus does next is he makes his case for his own deity. He begins by noting that David himself in Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, David wrote... Psalm 110, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it, that was the second song that we sang today in our, in our worship set. We were singing the words of Psalm 110. And what we, under, what we want to understand, what we see here and what we see there in Psalm 110, that word Lord, in the Greek, it's curious. It's one of the most common designations for deity that we see in the New Testament. But it corresponds to the Hebrew word Adonai in the Old Testament. It is worth noting that Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted over 22 times in the New Testament. It's also note, worth noting that if we go back to Psalm 110, if you read verse 1 of Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The first Lord there is capitalized. That means it's a translation of the name of God, Yahweh. So David, being divinely inspired in writing this text, says to Yahweh, the sovereign I am, he said to my Lord, to David's Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, David addresses the Messiah, who is his son, who is his descendant, as his Lord. That's what Jesus is drawing them to here. He's using Psalm 110, verse 1, to show them that David is calling his own descendant Lord. He is identifying him, not simply as Lord, as in a, you know, a noble person, but Lord as in Yahweh God. Not only that, David says, quotes the Lord as inviting the Lord to sit at Yahweh's right hand. To sit at someone's right hand was to be in a position of co-equal rank and authority. So to be at Yahweh's right hand was a place of divine exaltation. And the tense of the verb to sit indicates that the Messiah would sit in this place of exaltation perpetually, permanently. And so what this means, the text itself means that God himself would elevate the Messiah to a place of honor and glory that was equal with God himself for all eternity. Not only that, Yahweh God would also put all of the Messiah's beneath, enemies beneath his feet. And this metaphor, again, denotes total defeat and subjuga subjugation. In ancient times, when a king or a general had been victorious in battle, he would lead his troops in a, in a parade back through the home city, and they would bring the captives out, they would bring the captured king or the captured general of the enemy army out, and they would lay him down on the steps, and the conquering king or the conquering general would place his foot upon the enemy's neck, thus showing that they had brought the enemy into total subjugation. It's a sign of his glorious victory and that leader's abject humiliation. 
And so this, this text is also inherently eschatological, right? It's talking about the end times. There will come a time when all of God's enemies will be fully and finally conquered and set under the feet of Christ. So Jesus teaches them this, and then look what he says in verse 44. After citing this text, Jesus asks the second question in verse 44 to hammer home the point. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? It's a rhetorical question given to make a very clear point. Yes, yes, the Messiah is the son of David. He is the perfect fulfillment of what God promised King David, but he is also so much more. Not only is he the son of David, he is also the very son of God. He is David's Lord and everyone else's Lord. He is co-equal with God. He will be exalted with God for all eternity, and his ultimate victory over all of God's enemies is divinely assured. This truth is clearly taught in Scripture, and it should have been obvious to the scribes and Pharisees, but they just would not see it. Once again, with a masterful use of questions in Scripture, Jesus has set before the people and the religious leaders a clear explanation of his identity as God incarnate. And I want us to just pause right there and put ourselves in that position. Imagine yourselves, use your sanctified imagination to to imagine what it would be like to stand there in front of Jesus as he taught there in the temple courts that day. Perhaps you can even envision what it would be like to be one of the religious leaders so tied to your understanding of a Judaistic system of, of salvation by works, hearing these words taught. They know, these religious leaders, they knew that Jesus thought of himself as the Messiah. They knew the people viewed him as the Messiah. But once again, here he is claiming to be so much more than even that. Jesus was standing before them brashly in the midst of the temple grounds, claiming to be God himself. What would you say? What did they say? Now, this is where Luke doesn't give us everything. This is where it's helpful to have all four Gospels because the Gospels together give us a more complete picture. But if we go to Matthew, we see what happened. In Matthew 22, verse 46, it says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him any other question. Jesus was met at this grand teaching. He was met with silence, you know, crickets. They, they weren't able to answer him means that they weren't even capable. They could not reply. They could not refute his logic or his interpretation of Scripture. Jesus had asked them two simple questions based on an inspired text from Psalm 110, and they had no answer. These who were the teachers of Israel once again ended up looking like fools, and the people once again ended up in more awe of the wisdom of Jesus Christ. The hardness of these religious leaders' hearts was stunning and grievous. And once again, it shows us, it shows us just how hard the human heart can be to the things of God. Sin hardens us. Sin sin saps our wisdom. Again, just to put it bluntly, sin makes us stupid. So that even the most basic, most logical things taken from the word of God himself are clouded to us because we are so committed to our own pride, our own way, our own ideas, rather than submitting our mind, our heart, our will to the Lord God who created us. As one pastor said, 
The Pharisees and other religious leaders there that day were dumbfounded, but not convicted. They were silenced, but not convinced. They were humiliated, but not humbled. They were reluctantly impressed, but still unbelieving. Doubtlessly, they were thinking that they had been intimidated and embarrassed for the last time by the uneducated, unordained, and in their minds, unorthodox rabbi from Nazareth. Self-righteous religion has always been and will always be the greatest enemy of the gospel. I want you to think about that with me. You know, sometimes we think that atheism, atheism is the greatest, you know, enemy of the gospel. People who say there is no God, yeah, you're right. The Bible says, Psalms, Proverbs, everywhere, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. That, that's just plain foolishness to deny the reality of God. But you know what the greatest enemy of the gospel is? It is self-righteous religion. Because one who is self-righteously religious has convinced themselves that they have somehow earned their way before the holy God of the universe. And they come against true gospel ministry with a passion. Jesus is God incarnate. Any other concept of him is inadequate. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is our eternal Lord. Jesus shares with God all the attributes of deity, and we have blasphemed as his children if we ever think of him as less than our sovereign creator, our merciful savior, and our coming judge. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we must submit ourselves to that reality. You know, we, we, we really don't understand the metaphor of a king the way it's used in scripture, right? Right? We've all grown up here. We, we live in a, in a great country. We have a great system. We have a president. We have a president that we elect every four years. And, you know, like him or hate him, we, 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 this is our understanding of our authority over us. He's at the top, and everything filters down from there, right? And, and there's just enough of that American individualism in us, and, and there's some good things about that, and there's some bad things about that, but there's just enough of that American individualism in us to, to say, well, you know, the president has a certain authority, but not, uh, not a perfect authority. And, and that's true. We talk all the time about what is a right jurisdiction of authority, you know? The, the president has the right to sign laws into, into effect that, that govern our land, and, you know, governors below that and all those things. We know those structures are there, but the president doesn't have the right to tell me I have to eat my broccoli, right? That's his authority doesn't extend there. In fact, if we really stop and think about it, there's all kinds of limits to the authority of the president. But none of us understand historically what it was like to live under a king. If you lived under a king, that king had absolute right over everything. If you came before the king and he just decided that he didn't want you anymore as his subject, he could say, kill that person, and you would die. He had authority to do that. He had authority to, to put law into practice and to remove law. The king had the authority, really, in, in a very absolute sense. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, what it means to have Jesus as your king? I mean, to really understand who he is as your king. 
I want to leave us with four thoughts this morning, just, just a way and consider how, how we are to view and how we are to, to savor the fact that Jesus is our sovereign God, our King over all. First of all, in terms of our King in redemptive history, Jesus is our king in terms of redemptive history. And what I mean by that is Jesus is the second Adam who will fulfill the creation mandate to have dominion over all things. Remember what God told Adam back in Genesis 1.28. He said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did Adam do that? No. Adam failed to fulfill the creation mandate because of his sin. And every human being that came after Adam and Eve has subsequently failed for the same reason. We are all sinners. But Christ, Christ is the second Adam. He is not a sinner. He is the new and better Adam, as we just sang a few moments ago. And Jesus will exercise a full and final and ultimate dominion over all of creation. This is what Jesus is speaking of here. Not only will he be exalted to that right hand of God, all of his enemies will be set under his feet like a footstool. Philippians 2 speaks of this when it says, there will come a time when God will highly exalt him and bestow on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, make no mistake about this, Jesus is building towards that moment when he will exercise a perfect dominion over all of creation as the second Adam. Secondly, Jesus is our king in terms of his sovereign power and providence and grace. He is our, he is our king in, our ter in terms of his sovereign power and providence and grace. Jesus has a divine will and the sovereign power to see his plan and creation and in redemption accomplished. He is directing every detail of human history to his own desired end, and no one can undo or thwart what God has purposed. We have been redeemed by the one whose every promise is a certainty, who will bring every one of his, of his children to completion and every being in creation into submission. Jesus will protect and keep his people and bring us into his presence for all eternity. And so you can rest in him. Are you in the hand of your Lord this morning, your king? Then never fret. Never be overcome. Never lose hope. Because nothing can thwart the will and the power of your king, and his will shall be accomplished in you. He will bring you to completion. He will consummate his kingdom. This is what Paul was thinking of when he said in Romans 8, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is there to condemn. You can trust in him. He will never fail. Thirdly, Jesus is our king in terms of how we understand our purpose and how we live. He is our king in terms of how we understand our purpose and how we live. We have been bought by a price by our king, or with a price by our king. We are no longer, if we are in Christ, we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves of righteousness. 
We are one with him. We are sons and daughters of light. We are citizens of his kingdom. We are ambassadors of his kingdom. And every, every dynamic of our lives is to reflect his supremacy. Let me say that again. Every dynamic of our lives is to reflect his supremacy. Now, now what does supremacy mean? It means that he is ultimate and uppermost in what guides our will and what, what draws our affections and what causes our decision-making. You know what that means? It means your time, your moments are his. Your possessions, all that you have, everything that you believe you own, it's all his. Your thoughts, your will, your actions, your pursuits and desires... All of it belongs to him. And therefore, our greatest contentment and peace, our greatest satisfaction and joy, the greatest artistry and beauty and splendor that we could ever hope to experience is Christ. It's him. He's everything. It all belongs to him. All that you are, all that you have, everything you ever will be belongs to your king. And so, dear Christian, I want you to understand that one day you will stand before your Lord, your King, and answer for the life that you are living right now. Let me ask you, will you stand before him and find that you've lived too timidly? Will you stand before him and find that you've exercised only a little faith? Will you stand before him and find that you have invested too little in what is eternal and too much in what is passing away? Will you find that you have undertaken your marriage focused more on what you want than what he wants? That you have undertaken your parenting focused more on what you want than rather, rather than what he wants? Will you stand before him and find that with your church involvement you have focused more on what you want rather than he wants? what he wants? Will you stand before him and find that with your work or with your leisure time, you have focused more on what you want rather than what Christ wants? Listen, my entire mission is your pastor. My entire mission is your pastor, and I speak this on behalf of all our pastors. Our mission is to present you before the throne complete in Christ. To have you stand before him without regret. So how are you living, dear one? Is your life lived for your king? Or is your life lived for you? Christ shows us what a life lived for eternal glory looks like. And we're to follow him. 1 John 2, 5 and 6, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Brothers, sisters, let us walk as Christ walked. Now leave us on this fourth one, fourth note. Jesus is also our king in terms of love. He's our king in terms of love. You know, divine love was the motive of creation. 
Divine love is the motive of our redemption. Divine love is currently what drives our sanctification. And the fullness of divine love will be our eternal reward in glory. If you believe in Christ, you belong to Christ. You are a special object of the King's divine love. So do you love him who loves you so thoroughly and so completely? The son of David is at the exalted right hand of the Father, and he loves you. He is patient with you. He intercedes for you. He works in you to shape you in holiness and truth. And this is beautiful. When you and I fail, when we choose our own way, when we put our own wants and desires before him, he is long-suffering still. When our obedience is lacking, and make no mistake, it is always lacking. When our obedience is lacking, he imputes his perfect obedience to us. His love endures forever. His grace is sufficient. His forgiveness is cleansing. He is a king whose love for you does not waver and will not be denied. Brothers and sisters, what wondrous love that is. That is your hope. Your hope isn't in your identity. Your hope isn't in in your morality. Your hope isn't in what you do or, or what you are at all. All our hope collectively, the sum of all that we could hope for is Christ. He is everything. He is the one who is sufficient. He is the one who fills up that which is lacking. He is the one in whom we are declared righteous. He and his grace are the reason we call him Lord and know him as our king. Listen to the words of Psalm 36. Psalm 36, beginning at verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you will give them drink from the river of your delights. You hear that? He bids us to drink at the river of his delights. For with you, with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. I ask you this question. Can you even imagine a king that would give or love you more? No. That is Christ. Love him. And walk in the joy and beauty of his love for you. This king, as another measure of his grace to his church, bids us to come to his table. We do this every Lord's Day. Because this is one of those, the, the, this is the, the ordinance, ordinance given regularly to the church. We baptize periodically as needed as we have professions of faith in Christ. But this we do every Sunday. 
because this represents the fact that our king has made us welcome in his sight. This represents the fact that by the blood and the body of Jesus given for us as a sacrifice, we have fellowship with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so it is right that the word of God would lead us to the table of God wherein we celebrate the grace of God that is lavished upon us richly every day. If you're here today as a, as a fellow believer in Christ, we welcome you to this, this table with us. You know, at the end of Acts chapter 2, we see that those who, who received the word, the gospel word, they were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. If that describes you, if you've believed in the gospel, if you've believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him as your Savior and Lord, and been baptized and identified with a biblical church where you are under biblical teaching, apostolic teaching, then you are our brother and sister, and we welcome you to this table with us. But if that does not describe you, we would warn you. Paul had to warn the Corinthians that there were some unbelievers who came to the table of the Lord and they died. They brought a curse upon themselves because they partook of the body and blood of the Lord in an unworthy manner. If you are not a believer here today, we encourage you on the basis of this sermon to consider the state of your soul, to recognize that you are a sinner and to run in faith to Jesus Christ. He is the only way of salvation and allow these elements to pass by. There are some of you that are here that are professing believers that maybe you're in a fight, maybe you're in a struggle, maybe you're in a losing battle with your sin. And you may think that you're not worthy to come to this table. I would encourage you to understand it is not your worthiness that makes you welcome at this table. It is the worthiness of Christ that makes you welcome at this table. And take this as an opportunity even now to repent of your sin, to turn from it, and commit yourself unto obedience anew, and be strengthened by partaking of this with us. Be reminded that you are covered by the blood of Jesus, that you are no longer a slave to sin, and that Christ is work as at work in you and for you. Parents, if you have young ones here today, and they have not yet come to that place of salvation, help them to allow these elements to pass by. And to our young ones, we pray for you. We look forward to the day where you will partake of this with us. We pray for that. And we hope that even as you hear the word of God, you're thinking and understanding who Jesus is about your own sin and your own need to repent and believe in him, that you will trust in Jesus and be saved.